Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. This is SOAS Leads the Conversation. For this episode, we were fortunate to have Catherine Heiser, Professor of Jewish Studies at SOAS, lead an episode discussing Jews and coronavirus. She will be talking to Dr. Daniel Stetsky, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, Dr. Keith Con harris Senior Lecturer and Course Team Leader at the Leo Beck College, Dr. Michael Marks, Associate Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We will also be joined by Mr. Eli Spitz, Headmaster at the Talmud Torah Tiferes Shlomo Boys School, an Orthodox school in North London. They will discuss how Jewish communities have fared during lockdowns, the health and social impacts of COVID on these communities, and the response to vaccinations. My name is Catherine Heger and I'm Professor of Jewish Studies at SOAS University of London. In this session, we are going to talk about the impact of coronavirus on the Jewish community in the UK. In the last couple of weeks, British newspaper articles have focused on the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi community in two regards. Firstly, with regard to having experienced a particularly high COVID-19 infection rate. And secondly, in connection with some families continuing to hold large weddings and thereby transgressing lockdown rules. In this program, we shall discuss this issue uh, from various perspectives with experts from different fields. Our guests are Dr. Daniel Stetsky, who is Senior Research Fellow at Institute for Jewish Policy Research and specializes in demography and social statistics, especially with regard to religious and ethnic minorities. Dr. Keith Khan Harris, who is Senior Lecturer at Leo Beck College and Associate Lecturer at Birkbeck College. He's an expert on the British Jewish community. Dr. Michael Ma is Associate Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and lead researcher of a study on ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities and the coronavirus pandemic in the UK. And Eli Spitzer, who is Headmaster at Talmud Torah Tiferes Shlomo Boys School in London and an insider of the Haredi community in Stamford Hill. Our goal is to not only focus on the Haredi community, but to look at the broader context of particular challenges facing Jews in the UK and elsewhere in this crisis. Whereas the mentioned newspaper articles are usually written from an outsider's perspective, sometimes even blaming particular communities for transgressing rules and spreading infection, we have an insider of the Stamford Hill community with us today who can correct such allegations from within the community. We shall discuss these issues not only from a communal perspective, but also with regard to medical research and demography. My first question concerns the Purim holiday. This weekend, Jews celebrated the Purim holiday, commemorating the story of Esther and Mordechai, who saved the Jewish community from persecution in Persia. Last year, this holiday occurred shortly before lockdown. It is celebrated by Carnivalist street parades and get-togethers. My question, in what regards was Purim celebrated differently this year? 
Perhaps Keith would like to start. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on this. I can't speak for the Haredi community because Ali can do that a lot better than I can. Purim this year, outside of the Haredi community, has been largely online. One of the things that's happened over the last year is that the Jewish, the wider Jewish community has adjusted to doing things that we never before did online to the online world. So one of the differences between Purim and other Jewish festivals is that even those who Jews who are Orthodox, who keep halakha, who would not turn on their computers on the Sabbath or on other Jewish festivals, in Purim it's a bit different because it is possible to do those things on Purim. So that means that online celebrations of Purim are much more practical than they uh, than online celebrations of another festival like Rosh Hashanah, for example, which only in the Reform, Liberal, and to some extent the Mazorti communities is it possible to do them online. I, I certainly know that from my own family's experience, there was a systematic attempt, if you like, to try and get the most out of an online Purim celebration. My kids both attend a Jewish school and they had all sorts of online activities organised. They sent things through the post to help them join in. They tried their very hardest to make it like a Purim every year because usually Purim in Jewish schools is kind of a, a festive celebratory day. But I have to say that as with quite a lot of other Jewish activities, even though it's possible to do these things online, even though Jewish communities, schools and other organisations try very hard to put them online, no one would say that it's the same, particularly with a festival like Purim, which is very much about getting together, getting drunk for some people, certainly eating, uh, giving presents, that kind of thing. Online celebrations, whilst people try very hard to make them work, are probably a bit of a pale imitation of the original. Eli, is Zoom also used by the ultra-Orthodox community? And is it even halachically legitimate to use computers and Zoom on holidays? Zoom was not used in the Haredi community as a substitute for the normal religious practice of attending synagogue. There was perhaps some use of online platforms to replace the in-person fundraising, which is a, a big part of, of the annual Purim celebrations, where various groups put on performances in people's homes as a way of collecting funds for various charitable organizations. So probably that's the extent to which online fundraising platforms were used. From my experience, I'm not aware of a single example in Stamford Hill where an online platform was used to replace a religious service, such as the reading of the Megillah, which is the Book of Esther, which is something that men, women, children all uh, make sure that they attend in person. So Purim was very different this year in Stamford Hill. To be honest, I think there was a, a far greater emphasis on public relations. I'm not sure to what extent the emphasis was on public health, but certainly on public relations. And there were very little festivities on the streets. Just from driving around, I saw more photographers 
on the streets trying to find celebrations than the actual celebrations on the street. It also helped that Purim was on Friday this year, um, which sort of happens, I think, once every 15 or 20 years. And with Purim being on a Friday, celebrations always come to an end early because people prepare for the Sabbath and therefore things wrap up pretty early in the afternoon on Purim. So there was the same increase in synagogue attendance that you would expect on Purim, perhaps even more so this year because people were discouraged from holding Megillah readings at home and instead encouraged to attend synagogue simply from a compliance point of view, because synagogues are allowed to operate, whereas mixing of households isn't allowed. And I think that's probably been the biggest difference. But the, the honest truth is, it, there wasn't so much, and I, hopefully I'll get the chance to explain that from my perspective later on, but it wasn't so much a public health effort as it was a public relations effort. Purim is also very much a children's holiday. So were children able to dress up and have any fun? Yes, they were. Um, all the children that I know, dozens and dozens of them, from working in a Haredi school to my own children and their friends and family, they all dressed up. This is probably the highlight of their calendar for children in the Haredi community, dressing up in Purim. And yes, they all got to do that. There was, as I said, less mixing and meeting of uh, each other. But within families, we continued with our traditions of dressing up, exchanging gifts and so on. And that continued pretty much as in previous years. Traditionally, small gifts are exchanged amongst families, the so-called Mishloach Manes. So was that also done this year or did families refrain from doing so? Uh, my experience was not uh, people refrained from doing so. It, it continued that there was probably, I suspect more people were careful not to enter each other's homes, but just to sort of exchange those gifts at the doorstep, which is what the rabbinic guidance strongly encouraged this year. There was also a lot of sending of gifts prior to the actual day to avoid sort of uh, mixing on the day itself. But the exchanging of food parcels and gifts did not stop this year. Thank you. Turning to Michael, your study at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine has suggested that more than 60% of the strictly Orthodox Jewish community have been infected with COVID-19 at the end of 2020. What could be the reasons behind this high rate of infection? So we know in the United Kingdom that the impact of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 has been highly variable across a wide number of minority groups. So that's been most prominent in the media, probably with uh, individuals from a Black and Asian ethnic minority background. Uh, but there is data from a number of sources showing higher rates, for example, in the broader UK Jewish population. In terms of the things that people think have driven that sort of national level, Many ethnic minority communities have much larger than average household sizes. So in the white Caucasian, I guess what one might traditionally have called WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, population, the average household size in the UK is only two people. Whereas, for example, in the Haredi community, the average household size in our study was more than seven people. So large household sizes are also found in another number of other ethnic minority populations, particularly, for example, in the Asian and some of the Afro-Caribbean populations. And that is definitely an area that's being looked at, not just in that community, but in many minority communities. And they also 
because of those larger household sizes, there tends to be a greater degree of intergenerational mixing. Um, so I think those are sort of broad things that people have considered within uh, the minority populations. Obviously, in the Haredi community, it's a very tightly interconnected community. For much of the year, religious worship was allowed after the first lockdown ended in sort of May, June of 2020. Government continued to allow religious congregation and has continued to do so, for example, throughout the second and the third lockdowns in November and December. And we know generally that transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is related to the number of interactions that people have. So if you have a community where people have a higher number of interactions because they have larger household sizes or because they're religiously observant, then we would expect that they would have a higher rate of infection than, for example, non-religiously observant people who live in smaller nuclear households. So you pointed to similarities between the ultra-Orthodox community and other ethnic minority communities. And do these other communities then also continue with services? For example, the Muslim community and the Caribbean community you, you mentioned, do they also have communal get-togethers which have continued during the lockdown time? So I'm, I'm not an expert on any of those communities, so I'm probably not well-placed to put it. I think what one can say is that, you know, during the first lockdown, so that occurred after Purim, but during Pesach, for example, but then Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, they have all occurred during a period of time when the UK government has said that religious congregation has been allowed. We all recall that the restrictions on mixing were lifted for Christmas in 2020, um, and undoubtedly uh, many people did mix during the Christmas period. I'm not an expert, I guess, on the intermingling of Hindus or Muslims, but I would be extremely surprised if practicing Muslims didn't return to going to mosque once the government said that that was allowed, just as I would expect that many practicing Christians returned to going to church services once the government uh, legislation allowed that. Also important here is the significance of these gatherings, whether synagogue attendance, yeshiva study and weddings for the identity of the respective communities. Eli, could you tell us about the significance of the weddings for the Stamford Hill community? Well, the simple answer to that is the significance of weddings, of people getting married as such, is that in the Haredi community, it is pretty much the only way that relationships can happen. There are no relationships outside of marriage between men and women, that is. And therefore, the weddings are not only the ultimate expression of love between husband and wife, between man and woman. It is actually the start, the beginning of a relationship and outside of which no relationship can happen. So whereas I suspect for the majority of the British public, as difficult and as uncomfortable as it was to continually postpone their wedding plans, I don't think it got in the way of their plans to live together or to have a meaningful relationship together. In the Haredi community, that simply isn't an option. Weddings are the only framework in which relationships between men and women can happen. But that obviously only explains the need for two people plus perhaps a rabbi to officiate and a couple of witnesses. And I, I suspect the question is more about the large-scale weddings, and plenty of that has been reported in the media. And there is... As a starting point, it's important to bear in mind that the immediate family in the Haredi community 
usually two sides of the bride and groom already involves 50 or 60 people. That's brothers, sisters, siblings, um, uh, uncles and aunts, without cousins. Once you include first cousins, you're easily into triple digits, 150, 200, that's normal. That's standard. And on top of that, of course, everyone knows each other in the community. On, on average, I would receive between 30 and 40 wedding invitations a year, which is probably more than most people receive in a lifetime. And that is not because I am particularly popular or famous. It's because that's what everyone else experiences. This is a community where the, the way the community, the, the scale of interactions to refer back to what Michael was referring to earlier, is that is it, it defines the entire way of life in the Haredi community. Everything is about social interactions. Everything is about celebrating and marking life cycle events in each other's families. And not doing so involves basically going into a complete deep freeze, putting everything on hold. But to sort of push on that a little bit, without saying that anything Ellie says is wrong, but the sense that this deep freeze would be intolerable for year, two years, whatever, however long the, pa- the pandemic lasts, is dependent on the assumption that early marriage is absolutely essential. Well, sorry, early marriage in, in the sense that, that it is earlier outside the Haredi community. And that's an assumption which is contestable, although I'm not going to contest it here. It's not my place to do so. One of the things that I think that COVID has forced all communities to do is to is to look at which of their practices are essential and uncontestable and which are not. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has shown in the Haredi community is how little room for manoeuvre there is, how there are some assumptions about what are, what are essential that are very, very difficult, if not impossible, to challenge or to work around. Before we look at more of these issues in detail, I would I'd like to ask Daniel Stetsky, who has been involved in demographic studies, whether and to what extent distinctions are made between different Jewish denominations in these studies. Thank you. So uh, I will probably start by giving um, some sort of an overview, very brief overview of the path of the journey that the Jewish demography, let's say, had from the beginning of the pandemic till today in the UK context. Very early in the course of this pandemic, there was no certainty about what is actually happening to Jewish population. Rumors is all we had, suspicion all we had. And that continued until approximately May 2020, when the Office for National Statistics here in Britain published their study on differences between different uh, religious and ethnic groups with respect to mortality from COVID. And it's then where, for the first time, we could see, in a way that's completely clear, unambiguous, uncomplicated, that Jewish population in Britain had higher mortality rate from COVID compared to other groups. And not only that, we could see that. the Jews had high mortality from COVID compared to people or other religious groups in a similar condition, in a similar socioeconomic condition, living in the same place, for example, in London. So it was rather clear that, that there has to be something to do with Jewishness in itself that causes the higher mortality from COVID. What it was, we didn't know, but we knew that much. At that point, no distinction has been made between strictly Orthodox or non-strictly Orthodox or various, and various subgroups within 
book, Non-Strictly Orthodox World, it was clear that Jews as a whole had elevated mortality. And that's an incredibly important point. When we and others looked at that finding, the first question that people started asking is whether it has to do something with strictly Orthodox. And the, our answer was and is it is emphatically not the case. It has nothing to do with strictly orthodox for simple arithmetical reason. That strictly orthodox uh, population in the age groups that most affected by COVID is very small proportion of the total Jews, about 5%. I'm talking about age groups 60 plus. Well, this is the age groups that suffer mostly from COVID mortality. So the conclusion then is that it is non-strictly orthodox Jews mainstream orthodox, let's say, and progressive and liberal and people who are unaffiliated to any religious denomination, it is them who had uh, elevated mortality. So that is that is the first part uh, of my, my answer. Now, when um, now I'm leaving the study of the Office for National Statistics aside, let us uh, it will it, let, let it stand in the background. And then uh, what I'm going to say is that the Institute for Jewish Policy Research launched its own data collection across different denominations, liberal, progressive, reform, mainstream orthodox. And what we could see then uh, when we compared those studies, or when we compared those data sets, we could see that there isn't much of a gradient in elevated mortality. So all Jewish groups suffered more from COVID than, well, the mortality was elevated. It was more than in normal seasons in previous years. And there wasn't much of a difference between them either. So the elevated mortality from COVID in Britain is a problem of the entire Jewish population, certainly not strictly Orthodox. And it's important to understand, not for any public relations uh, reasons, but for reasons that have to do with proper science. If we are to solve the problem, we have to define the problem correctly. I would like to um, turn to Michael in this regard. Did your medical study just focused on the strictly orthodox community or did you also measure COVID rates amongst more liberal or secular Jews in the UK and compare them with orthodox uh, infection rates? So this study is conducted in one strictly orthodox community uh, in North London. So it, it doesn't say anything about the rates of infection amongst the broader Jewish population. And that's really reflective of where the project came from. Uh, we were actually approached by a community organization in the strictly orthodox community who wanted to understand the higher rates of infection that they thought that they were observing in sort of April and May of 2020. So the work was done in response to a request from the community and is therefore focused on that community. There are a number of large national studies Andrew Hayward's Virus Watch, Sarah Walker's ONS study, Helen Ward's REACT study, which will look at different rates across um, ethnic minorities. I, I'm not sure how well that will ever answer a question about the Jewish population, because of course it depends how those groups choose to collect information on ethnicity and how people report it. I guess just to say, I guess in terms of Daniel's comment about there being a Jewishness factor. I sort of understand what he means by that, but I think it's important to say I, I think it's very unlikely that's a biological Jewishness factor. You know, it's a factor about the interconnectedness of the communities and the socio-demographics of the communities, which is why you see similar trends in other ethnic minority groups. It's very hard to think what a biological factor would be that would explain increased rates of infection or mortality 
that simultaneously affects you know, Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe, Sephardi Jews from uh, North Africa, Pakistani and Bangladeshi Muslims from, you know, South Asia. So I think that's that's very unlikely. I mean, there is something about Jewishness as a socio-demographic construct, but not as, I think it's very unlikely that it's Jewishness as a biological construct, because that's quite hard to understand. And also ethnicity has really, at a biological level, not a very strong underpinning um so it's 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 quite unlikely keith would you say that there are specific challenges for the jewish community at large concerning coronavirus well i think one thing that pandemic has shown is that it, it is both the similarities and the differences between uh, the Haredi Jewish community and the rest of the community. We talk a lot about the differences, but we don't often talk about the similarities. And one of the similarities is that that's the, that closeness, that continual stream of events where people come together, that happens outside the Haredi community uh, as well, although perhaps not to the same degree as families aren't quite as, as large. If you think about the average non-minority British population, insofar as we can speak of such a thing, the number of family or close friends events that one goes to in one's life are likely to be confined to weddings, funerals, perhaps occasionally christenings. And we have our versions of that, of course, but we also have the mitzvahs. So that adds one extra event that, that that Jews attend in large numbers. We also have, and that's the case even for fairly secular Jews, and it's also the case that fairly secular Jews may often have what are known as shiva prayers after a funeral, which is having uh, prayers on the nights following the, uh, the funeral. So I think one of the things that we, we've seen is how these expanded opportunities to be together is, I think, at least part of the puzzle, or probably not all the puzzle, for explaining the figures that that Daniel was talking about. Certainly, I attended a mitzvah uh, a couple of weeks before lockdown happened last, last year, and everyone was packed very tightly together. And these weren't Haredi people, these were m- mostly liberal Jews in various forms. So in that respect, the challenges to our way of life has significant commonalities across the community. There, are, Where there are differences is to do with freedom of manoeuvre. As I said in my response to Ellie uh, a bit earlier on, the in the Haredi world, there is very little wiggle room to adapt one's life, lifestyle because certain things are seen as non-negotiable. The further you go outside the Haredi community towards modern Orthodox, Mazorti, Reform, Liberal and Secular Jews, the more wriggle room that there actually is. So, which isn't to say there aren't still choices about what to do. So, most reformed synagogues, liberal synagogues, did even when they had the opportunity to open up uh, in limited ways uh, in the autumn and last summer, chose not to do so. Although some did do some very limited outdoor distance, outdoor distanced prayer services, and that was the result of choices, no less as in the Orthodox and Haredi popula- uh, populations. I think one of the things that we've seen is 
is is a questioning across the community about what is essential to our lifestyle and what isn't essential to our lifestyle. And again, as I said so before, there are similarities and there uh, and there are some strong differences as well. But what is shared right across it is this sense of existential challenge. And my comment actually relates not so much to what Keith said, but uh, to the comment made to the clarification made by by Michael earlier. Mm-hmm who basically said the, that Jewishness factor that you were talking about, the Jewishness that elevates mortality, is not shouldn't be understood as biological, and I completely agree. And I would, lo- would like to strengthen that point as well in saying that um, the research showed us that Jews have, uh, Jews as a whole, as a, irrespective of whether they are strictly orthodox or not, have elevated mortality from COVID, at least in wave one, and that kept, that held uh, good after socioeconomic factors were controlled for. So when, when um, Jews were compared to people in the same socioeconomic position living in London, that kept. Um, our working hypothesis today is very much aligned with what uh, Mark, uh, Mark, Dr. Marx is saying, is that it has to do something with the number of interactions that people have and sociability in particular. One finding that is uh, on one aspect that comes very strongly from the existing surveys of Jews and non-Jews across Europe is this, and it may surprise people here, um, that um, people know, I think it's generally known, that the intensity of religious life among strictly Orthodox is very high, and that the so-called liberal Jews or progressive reform uh, just don't have that intensity. Uh, they attend synagogue less frequently, for example. That is completely true. That is a fact of life. However, what we see is that when we compare Jews across the religious spectrum to non-Jews in their countries, in Britain, in France, in Italy, it doesn't matter where, what we could see that even Jewish, uh, Jewish people from the most liberal denominations, the reform, and what's called the progressive, they attend synagogues at a greater frequency than non-Jews attend church. If you go to the surveys of church attendance in Europe, what you find is that church attendance in Europe today is in single digits. It's below 10%. The Reformed Jews attend synagogues more frequently than that. And that is observed observed everywhere across Europe. So Jews as a whole have greater ritual life, more intense ritual life, and social life that's related to ritual life. Bar mitzvahs, for example, that, that others mentioned before. So Sociability and the number of interactions is the key factor. That's what we strongly suspect now. Thank you. Eli, would you like to comment on this too? Uh, Not so much on what Michael has said and what Daniel has followed up with. I'm not an expert. I'm not a statistician. So it would be difficult for me to to take a position on that. I wanted to come back on what Keith has said um, in his last comment about the difference between the Haredi position of inflexibility when it comes to religious observance. Um, Now, there obviously is a significant difference between how the Haredi community views um, the mechanics of religious observance compared to other denominations. But I think that also totally and completely ignores um, uh, what is, in my opinion, a much more significant factor. 
And that is that over time, the Haredi community as a whole, of course, there are exceptions to everything, but I, I, I feel very strongly about this. The Haredi community has significantly downgraded the seriousness of the virus, in their view. And this ties directly into the findings of Michael's study, which is that when you have an infection rate of 75%, and parenthetically, most people that I've spoken to in, in the Stamatal community thinks, think that that's an underestimate, the 75% figure, you will struggle to convince people that this virus is a terribly deadly disease when everyone they know has already had it. And to illustrate the point even further, that people always, when they comment on the Haredi community, tend to ignore the very significant fact, which is that during April and May of last year, during the first wave, Haredi community locked down. Synagogues were closed, schools were closed, people stayed at home, people did their garden minyanim and prayed outside, and this lasted for six to eight weeks. They may have started easing up slightly before the government started easing up, but there was a very real lockdown. And as difficult as it was, people were scared. Passover of last year was celebrated under extremely difficult conditions for the majority of the Haredi community in Stavatil, when they're usually used to going to their parents, to their in-laws. It's a, the, the Seder night is a huge family affair, and people were doing it in their one-bedroom flats on their own. Over time, people have simply seen, probably because of the mixing that was going on in the run-up to lockdown, that quite simply was too late. COVID has already ripped through the community. Let's not forget that there was no mass testing at the, at the time. So no one really knew there was no testing of asymptomatic cases or contact tracing. The virus ripped through the community and the attitude was very much that we tried to lock down and it didn't work. And at the same time, people are grossly exaggerating the seriousness of the disease, which is just not based on conspiracy theories, but simply based on the very real experience of everyone in the community having contracted the disease. Thank you. And so what could be the reasons for the Haredi community downplaying the seriousness of COVID? Is it that the notion now is that the community has almost reached herd immunity, or is it also related maybe to beliefs that God is responsible for life and death rather than anyone, anything one does oneself? What would you say could be the reasons? So I'll start with addressing the second proposition, which I think is completely ridiculous to suggest that the reason the Haredi community don't believe in the public health measures is as a result of believing that um, up to God and nothing we will do with help. Because if that would be the case, Haredim wouldn't take up cancer treatment, which they certainly do. And they are actually Haredim have, and I've written about this extensively, Haredim have a very good track record of engaging with medicine and pursuing cutting edge treatment. Haredi welfare organizations, a prime example of that is actually the, the, the community organization that actually approached Michael's team and commissioned this study. This study came as a result of a Haredi organization that wanted to understand how this disease works its way through the community. So it's certainly not that. I think people, like I said, people downgraded the seriousness of the disease because they've experienced it, they've seen it, and you would struggle to go. When most people in wider society form their opinions of something like this based on what they see on the televisions, the fact that the Haredi community, whilst they have access to information. I, I reject the notion that 
and they don't have access to communication. They have access to the information, but they don't form their worldview based on what a reporter in a studio tells them. They are much more likely, and I think all people would do the same, to form their opinion based on what they can observe. And what they have observed was an infection rate of 70, 80, or 90%. In, in, in my own family, it has certainly be more than 90% that I know of. My wife, my children, my mother, my father, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, every, every single one of them had the disease, tested positive. And when people observe that, it is very difficult to convince people that this is another version of the Black Death. Um, so you mean that in your family and elsewhere, um, people already had COVID, but it, it wasn't that serious. They didn't experience or didn't have relatives or friends who died of COVID. We all know people who died from COVID. And, and this is not about COVID denial. And it's very important to make that distinction. It's a combination of two factors. It's a combination of lockdown skepticism, meaning having lockdown during the first lockdown and seeing the virus rip through the community regardless. And at the same time, also, actually, whilst the virus was ripping through the community, seeing so many people that you know having the virus and recovering, you automatically become desensitized to being convinced that this is so serious that it warrants a complete disruption of your life for an extended period of time. Let's hear what Michael has to say on this point from a medical perspective. There are several different angles to go with. The first is to say that we know that mortality from SARS-CoV-2 infection is strongly associated with age. We know that the Haredi community is much younger than the average UK population. So the median age in the UK is more than 40 and the median age in the Haredi community is about 20. So we would anticipate that there would not be, relatively speaking, an extremely high number of deaths related to the infection rate because the population is, is young. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is I think it's not true that the lockdown didn't do anything. It's very clear that the cases fell dramatically, or the reported cases fell dramatically during lockdown. So I think it is, it's pretty clear that lockdown was an effective measure in the community. I think the broader issue, which is, is complicated, is that it, speaking here sort of purely as a public health person, communities don't operate in isolation. So even the Haredi community, which is, you know, quite a tightly knit community, it's still embedded within a larger community. And of course, there are people are interacting with people who are not from within the community who may have a different risk profile. You know, for example, I've been vaccinated, but I continue to have to act as if I might be infectious because I might be. And although I might feel that my risk is lower, the risk of other people I come into contact with may be very different. So I think you know, you have several things uh, coming into play here. The risk of mortality within the Haredi community probably is lower because of their age structure. But we also have to be aware that the community is embedded within other communities and that people do interact, obviously, with people there. I mean, I don't live in Stamford Hill anymore. I did used to. Uh, and of course, people do go to many of the same sh shops. So there are, you know, there is interaction across the community boundaries, because of course, there aren't really true boundaries. I, I think I'd like to, sorry, it sounds like uh, in this call that I'm taking issue with Elliot not. I think he's he's offering, a, am sure, a very fair representation of what many Haredi people think. But certainly as an outside observer of a Haredi community, one of the other things that struck me is the level of dissensus also within the Haredi world as well, that there
there is considerable disagreement about COVID strategies and pushback against some Haredi authorities. I think that sometimes gets neglected as well. The fact that those sorts of controversies are happening within the Haredi world uh, world as well, uh, as they always do, because the Haredi communities, I'm sure Ellie would, would, would acknowledge, is, is, is far from being unified. So I'd probably want to, to sort of to, to inject a little bit of scepticism about what Ellie's saying in the sense that I do think there are some who probably don't share that level of, of fatalism and who have challenged, usually quietly, Haredi authorities who've not shown the same desire to to abide by distancing regulations as they themselves feel. I would like to now address the issue of vaccines and vaccine uptake. Perhaps Michael can say something on this. Is there any hesitancy about vaccine uptake in the ultra-Orthodox community or the Jewish community at large? I'm really, I'm not the right person to ask this question, probably. I think, you know, we've, I can comment on what we've seen nationally. We have seen nationally that there are differential rates of uptake amongst many minority groups. Um, so, for example, there's very clear data from Birmingham or Liverpool showing higher rates amongst white, more socially privileged groups and lower rates amongst black and Asian ethnic minority groups. There has been a sort of, I guess, externally, a traditional belief that the Haredi community don't like vaccines. You know, that would be a common narrative. But there's been some quite nice work done actually showing that often the issue is more around access to services rather than not believing in them. Um, So there was some very nice work done by my colleagues a few years ago showing that it was challenges accessing services, which you can imagine if you have a larger number of children, for example, it's it's a traditional way of providing uh, vaccines has not been so effective. So I don't think that there's differential to any other group, a strong evidence of that. And I know that, for example, Hapzola in Stanford Hill have been very involved in rolling out the vaccine in the area. So it's it's not something we directly studied in the community. It is a common belief, although I'm not sure it's a true common belief. I think there's quite a lot of evidence that it's not true. And I think, you know, we are seeing some of the community medical organizations be quite actively involved in, in rollout at present. But I guess in terms of the specifics of the community, I'm not the best place person to answer. Thank you. Um, Eli, can you tell us about vaccine uptake and particular challenges concerning the vaccine in the Stamford Hill community? I think Michael's instincts are absolutely right. It's a complete myth that the Haredi community would have a a large proportion of anti-vaxxers. The Haredi community has, by and large, been sceptical of lockdown measures, but they haven't been sceptical of the existence of the virus, and they do not have a track record of being sceptical of medical innovation either. It is often, uh, people often conflate what they know or think they know about religious conservative groups and apply that to the Haredi community. Anecdotally, I can tell you that people are very keen to get the vaccine. People are very keen to support the effort of rolling out the vaccine. And I I was contacted a few weeks ago by the Ministry of Health to ask me 
what I can do to help. They, they are worried that when it comes to rolling out the vaccine, that the community wouldn't want to take it up. And I said to the woman on the phone, I said, you know, why are you worried? Is this based on, on any research or any data? I said, no, no, we don't. Well, she didn't really know why she was worried and why they had this concern. And I said, I really, really don't think, as a head teacher, I can tell you that when it comes to, for example, immunizations, flu jabs, which we run in my own school and in other schools, people are very keen and very willing to take up these things. And the evidence so far, from what I can see, is that people have been very cooperative and very willing and, and, and very keen for this vaccine to be administered as quickly as possible. So I don't think there's anything to worry about there. Finally, let's look at the UK Jewish community in the broader context to whether and to what extent is the situation of the Jewish community in the UK comparable to the Jewish community in Israel and in the US. And I would like to ask Daniel in particular whether such studies have been made, comparative studies have been made. Yes, thank you. So in the, in the early days of this pandemic, which means March and April 2020, we, by we, I mean the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, approached Jewish burial societies. And uh, it would be fair to say that we uh, went far and wide with this exercise. We approached burial societies across the globe in all major Jewish communities. And we asked them for two very simple things. To tell us, the report to us, the number of, of deaths that took place during the pandemic, which is March, April, and May 2020. And also, we asked them to give us the history of the burials in their, in their society. So we could compare the recent numbers during the pandemic time to the normal times. We could see the difference between the two, between the two situations. And as I said, we, we traveled far and, and wide, metaphorically speaking. Uh, we have data, we collected data from the communities in the United States, in Canada, in France, Germany and Israel, and also a smaller communities, um, European Jewish communities, for example, in Belgium and Austria. And what we could see, if, if I have to come up with one single word to describe what we see, we could see a mosaic situation. There were communities that were very strongly affected by COVID, by what we call excess mortality from COVID. And apart from the United Kingdom, there was a community in Belgium and Brussels, interestingly, that was affected by COVID to the same extent. So the community had a lot of excess deaths, and uh, it was very similar to the British Jewish community. On the other side of the spectrum, we had the Jewish community, Jews in Israel, that at the time, during the first wave of the pandemic, were almost not affected. Of course, there were COVID deaths there, but as a whole, mortality was not elevated. Historian or demographer in 100 years' time, if you come to the data, wouldn't be able to see signs of epidemic in Israel at that time. A lot of other communities were in between those, those, those parts of the spectrum. So some of them had elevated mortality, but really not a lot. I have to describe it verbally. And, and some others had it very lightly. For example, Eastern European communities, Central European communities, Austria, in Hungary had elevated mortality, but really not to the extent we could see in the United Kingdom. The same is true about France. The same is true about Rome. At the same time, so, so, but we also couldn't see national patterns. For example, in Italy, 
north of Italy was strongly affected, and Jewish communities in the north of Italy were strongly affected. Rome and the south were not affected to the same extent, almost not at all. So in one word, it's a mosaic. It's a very wide spectrum of situations, which brings back the point of a social. Social factors were probably crucial for that. So it's not Jewishness as a biological quality. It's basically probability of exposure to the virus that really affected strongly certain communities that chance had it that they were exposed to the virus early on and didn't affect others. There are many interesting aspects of our discussion which would warrant further discussion, but unfortunately we have reached the end of this program. I would like to thank everyone who participated, and I'm sure that the discussion served to clarify many aspects and readings which one has seen in newspapers. And so thank you very much again to all participants. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of SOAS Leads to Conversation. To find out more about our interviewer and our guests and what they're working on or have published recently, please check out the links in the show description.